Broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of the Investor Exchange. Uh, I'll be hosting today Louis Van Copenhagen in the studio and joined, as always, by Joel Hewish and Brett Dickinson. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Louis. Good morning, listeners. Another week. That's been another week. Uh, Another week of life and uh, life returning to relative normal. We've got a long weekend coming up, fellas. Oh, bring it on. Bring it on. (laughs) Here I was only about three weeks ago complaining that things seem to have, you know, got off uh, to a slow start and uh, for this year. And then all of a sudden, bang, uh, in the last three weeks, I don't think I've worked this hard in a two week stretch for God knows how long. Um, (laughs) And I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you love what you do, mate. I'm pretty tired. I can tell you that much. Hey, but I'll tell you one thing that's good. Footy's back. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh. Collingwood and Richmond tonight. Preseason, yep. uh, preseason game. Actually, Brett, we never got ourselves organised enough. We probably should have been going to that tonight. Yeah, no, don't worry. I've, I've thought about it many times, but I, logistically, I just wasn't able to make it work. Yeah, no, I understand. Even I've got a, I've got a wife as well who's uh, asking for me to be home tonight, given exactly. it, given she has, given she hasn't seen me for the last couple of weeks. But uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, in fact, my wife, my wife is wondering whether or not I even like her because uh, she's just gone and had a, a an operation and uh, she's been off work for the last two weeks. Hence, why she's not hosting the the, the podcast the last couple of weeks. And uh, she's had to have her mother uh, come over and stay at our place for the last two weeks. Because, <laughs> but they already knew I was going to be useless, right? So. <laughs> Isn't that planning ahead? Oh, jeez. Oh, ahead, yeah, yeah. She needs some help at home. Expectation. Yeah. 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 It was a package deal, Brett. We knew it was yeah, a package yeah, deal. Yeah, I knew that one. <laughs> but, mate, don't let them down. Make sure you are useless. <laughs> <laughs> I thought your wife was Scott Pendlebury and you're obligated to go to the game tonight. <laughs> Yes, well, uh, unfortunately, let's not tell her about that. She might be. <laughs> uh, the good thing is, I won't be missing out. Still got Fox Sports or KO, so I'll be watching it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm yep. going to get my subscription fired up again. How's that, Joel? How good is a subscription business model when uh, people can cancel it for the half the year that they don't want it or don't need it? Hey, consumer consumer business is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Dial it up, dial it down. Yep. Not good for their cash flows, though. No, not good for their cash flows. No, not at all. Joe, you you say footy's back. Now, there's one other thing that's back that I'm really not liking, and that's traffic. My God. Big time. Yeah, actually, you know what, Brett? Uh, Coming into the city this week, I have noticed that the city is... You know, it, it's thriving again. Well, mm. you know, I'm sure that there's plenty of retailers and uh, and restaurants that are still sort of you know feeling the pain because um, 
because numbers are still down, but it feels like more than 50% of people are back in the offices when you're coming and commuting during peak hour. The trams are getting full again. The the streets and the intersections where you're crossing roads are just, you know, there's big groups of people there. So it uh, it, it feels like we're on the very much on the road to recovery. Yeah. And uh, not too far away. I wonder when 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 will he start to look at you know when will he, uh, Lord Dan, um, start to uh, look at seventy five percent in the city. Well, it was on the cards, wasn't it? I yeah, thought it, it was. was uh, yeah. And and then it got removed, and I thought it came back onto the cards. Yeah. Is are we already back to seventy five? I think we are. I, yeah, I, I think, think I'm yeah. pretty sure we're seventy five percent allowed now. Okay. Well, there you go. That's why yeah. it feels busier this week. <laughs> Well, not that our office has room for 75%. But... No. No, that's right. Mm, no, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, gents, uh, let's get into it. Uh, talking about um, uh, people moving about and, uh, and what's going on, Brett, why don't, we, uh, why don't we lead in with you? You were going to talk about a particular type of property today. Yeah, it is a – well, it's, a, it's not necessarily a particular type, but it's it's more of a particular price. Uh, okay. I want to talk about uh, luxury property, uh, talking residential property and, and what the luxury property market's done around Australia over the last 12 months and, and even recently. Uh, and what sort of spiked my interest here was just some insights I, I read the other day that – the likelihood of suburbs with a three million dollar median is uh, is likely to double this year. Wow! Uh, and okay. apparently it, it doubled last year. So really, last year? Yeah, okay. Last year. Uh, wow. And there's a bit of a uh, bit of a logic behind this. So realestate.com and both uh, CoreLogic have got some some data I want to share today. But uh, the things I found interesting was that towards the end of 2020, the views per listing on realestate.com.au for homes priced over 10 million increased 150% compared to what over it was 10? prior. Yep, compared Oof. to prior to COVID uh, impacting. Wow. So okay. One explanation is that uh, you know people are stuck at home and they're they're dreaming looking at you know luxury listings. Uh, but the other more logical reason is that uh, there's a lot of expats, wealthy expats, looking to come home. Uh, ah. and they're potentially looking at all of these. Right. So, mm. uh, so in 2021, yeah, it's possible that the list of, of $3 million plus suburbs uh, will double. Uh, majority of suburbs, of course, we sort of know this, will be in Sydney. Um, but there's a few contenders uh, in Victoria uh, and a few in the Gold Coast or, or areas of southeast Queensland as well. Uh, and I thought in line with that, I, I had a quick look at the records of what were the highest residential sales that, uh, that occurred last year. Uh, any idea what the, um, the most expensive residential property to sell last year was? Oh, I couldn't guess. Oh, I'm going to take a stab and say about 75 mil. Uh, you're a little bit overpriced there, Joel. Um, okay, right. I thought it was a record, though. I thought it was. Yeah, I thought that, there was, that was a particular forty-something million dollar or fifty million dollar property. Well, there was an so Atlassian. The Atlassian boys paid seventy-five million or seventy and seventy-five million for their properties a couple of years ago, but yeah, uh, don't know about last year. And I think there was a um, a penthouse board in that new Barangaroo um, that is probably yet to settle that I thought might have been up there too. So that's I can't see that listed here. So I'm assuming that's yet to settle. Mm, uh, right. But the biggest sale of last year was 51 million on record. Right. Uh, 
which was in Point Piper, New South Wales. Uh, in fact, the top 10 biggest sales last year were nine of which were all New South Wales. Uh, and the 10th one was actually uh, Mermaid Beach on the Gold Coast. Really? Mermaid oh. Beach? Mermaid right. Beach. And I think I know this properly. So, Joel, obviously, we've been to the Gold Coast a fair bit in, in the last year or two. And, and even, yep. Louis, you've been there as well. So, yep. Hedges Avenue, which is the street that runs parallel to the beach, sort of oh. from uh, from Broad Beach going south. Okay. Uh, so, there's a property there at 187 to 191 Hedges Avenue, sold for $22.6 million last August. Right. Okay. So, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it's a Hampton-style house that's on a corner of uh, of that block that goes from the street all the way through to the beach. And, yeah, it looks fantastic, if it's the one I'm thinking of. I probably could have looked it up on Google, but I hadn't, hadn't prepared myself that well. Uh, yeah, so if you think about it, first place at $51 million, 10th place at 22.6, uh, and several others obviously below that. Highest median value for, um, as a suburb for the for the country is Darling Point in Sydney. Now, this right. is staggering. The The median price is $7.06 million. That's the median. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's the Nationals' highest median suburb. Uh, the lowest, now, how about this for, for differences? The lowest median for houses is $58,000. And whereabouts is that? Whoa. Uh, it, it, you knew it had to be remote and desolate. It's, yeah. uh, it's Norseman, which from memory is is not far oh. from Kalgoorlie in that gold mining area. Ah, uh, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but look, even units uh, are getting, you know, up there and well in price. So Point Piper, uh, again, <laughs> features with a medium unit price of $2.28 million. Right. Jeez. Wow. So, yeah. Significant. And 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 what what are we sort of seeing this year? Probably uh, probably even more records being broken, perhaps. Well, that that's the indication. I mean, given what we've already said about uh, you know property prices are, are if anything increasing in the at the moment, maybe not not significantly, but they're certainly in positive territory, uh, and sales volumes are, are strong. So, if that's the case, we would expect to see you know more of these sorts of prices. Uh, I mean, the luxury market's a bit different because you know, $50 million worth of, of property in one transaction. There's, there's not a whole host of Australians that can really participate in that. <laughs> and, 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 Brett, how do we how do we view the luxury apartment market? <laughs> well, look, if, if, you, if you read that the Point Piper won it uh, with a median of 2.2 uh, and uh, even looking, you know, state by state, there are apartments in a number of suburbs that are, that are approaching that million-dollar median. So... The luxury apartment market, I think, is, has got a, a pretty good year coming up as well as, as you know, the, the baby boomers are, are still looking to downsize. Uh, there'd be a lot of wealthy baby boomers and, and people of that era that are, that are looking to, to simplify their life and yet still live in a suburb in, a, in an environment that they really feel comfortable with. So I think luxury apartments in good suburbs like, I don't know, maybe Armadale or Hawthorne or Brighton. Or Templestowe. <laughs> Templestowe. <laughs> I, I think those sorts of places, yeah, they could go really well. I think you guys are referring to something that's specific to you. Could that be? But I think it's about bloody time that there's uh, some some decent diversity of uh, of accommodation available through apartments. Um, 
I mean, I think everyone's done apartment living, or, or most people have lived in some kind of apartment in their in their lifetime. Um, it seems to be a bit of a, a rite of passage, and it just seems like so much of it is as small as possible for as little as possible. And I'm, I'm glad that more uh, developers are, are cottoning on that people would actually be willing to live in apartments long term um, if there were the appropriate uh, dwelling type. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and Louis, what you touched on there, I think we may have mentioned this in a previous podcast, uh, certainly in Victoria, I'm not 100% sure with the other states have a similar concept, but what, what Victoria introduced called BADS, which is the uh, Better Apartment Design Standards. Yep. Um, which was born out of exactly what you said, a lot of really small apartments with with very little natural light and, and small living spaces that weren't overly functional. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, pretty much any any new permit for apartments now incorporates a, a much different approach than what the uh, the permits that were granted sort of five to ten years ago. And, yeah. and a lot of it is in line with what you've said there, bigger living spaces, uh, yeah, it's more open and, and well-lit uh living spaces and bedrooms and alike. So, yeah, there is a, a definitely a change. Uh, and in line with that, because there's not as many um, overseas investors, the, the developers that are building apartments are looking at the owner-occupiers and knowing that they want a, a, a better apartment than what's been provided before. So mm, yeah. you're spot on with what you said. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Guys, uh, I'll, I'll touch on a couple of other interesting stats around here. So million-dollar suburbs, uh, of course, New South Wales always leads the way with, with volume. So they've got 212 suburbs with a median above a million dollars. Right. Uh, we're not far behind. In, and, and look, I'm not. A, uh, uh, these are the capital cities, so not just the states. So obviously Melbourne next. So there's there's probably a couple of uh, regional areas that might have pockets worth it as well, some coastal areas and the like. So Melbourne has 135. Um, but I'm sure areas like Portsea and Sorrento would probably be included in that if you look mm. Victoria-wide. Uh, Brisbane, so this doesn't include the Gold Coast or Sunshine Coast, they have 23. Uh, Perth has 18 and Adelaide has 15. Right, So okay. We are a wealthy country. Yes, we are, when it comes we? to real estate, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And just to... One other stat on the the highest medians nationwide. So we mentioned before of Darling Point having the the median at, at just over seven million. Coming in at number ten is um, is Dover Heights. So the top ten are all above three point six million medians. Right. Okay. Uh, yep. There's a lot of wealth. Yeah, there is a lot of wealth, and and I guess right at the top ends, um, whenever the the economy or the world goes through a new kind of cycle, there's new people that profit from it. So, you know, there's there's people that have been able to benefit from this uh, this COVID period of time, um, and they're the new entrants into that new luxury market. And I'm guessing a lot of the people who are already in that luxury market have not necessarily dropped out of it. Yeah. So, you know, the, every year or every two years or every five years, whatever the cycle is, You've got this new breed of um, uh, of wealthy person um, coming into that market. Yeah. So it's it's always going to be growing. Absolutely. Well, and sorry guys, I, I know I'm hogging the the limelight a bit here, no. but here's some more interesting data that I'm just looking at too about the growth suburbs of the luxury market. So here's a particular space, Queenscliff in New South Wales, which now has a median of three million nine hundred sixty-seven thousand. Mm-hmm. Had a fifty-nine percent increase last year. 
A 59% wow. increase in price. In median, yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Now, where, where's Queenscliff? Is that north of Manly? Is that up, up around there? Not an area I, I'm familiar with. I, I'm, I'll need to Google that one, Joel. Um, yeah. I'm assuming that uh, the next one down, which is Whale Beach, uh, with a median of 5.2, uh, grew by 55%. So there's some strong growth in this uh, luxury market as well. Uh, Jolly, yeah, you're correct about uh, Queenscliff, right above Manly, uh, just below freshwater. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, good spot, though. Good spot. Oh, yeah, great spot. Yeah. Uh, understandable. Yeah, lovely, lovely. Oh, well, thanks for the insight, Brett. There's uh, some fascinating numbers in there. and um, yeah. Let's try I and think... get ourselves on that list one day, hey? I think everyone yeah, exactly. uh, here and listening to it wants to uh, wants to hold something uh, in one of those pockets. Even, uh, even better, Brett. Let's get a few of our clients on there as well. Yeah. <laughs> there well, you go. Very good. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. And welcome back. Uh, now, Joel, you've been putting out some notices in the last uh, few days and, and saying for a number of weeks now about uh, a, a market correction um, uh, likely to happen and starting to happen, and uh, I think now certainly happening, happening. Would you would you say? Yeah. 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 Indeed, uh, Louis. Uh, look, it, it's not happening everywhere and it's not happening across the board. I think what we're seeing here at the moment is more of a rotation out of those stocks. And we, and we mentioned this last week when I was talking about some of the uh, travel industry um, sectors that look like we're firming up. There, there appears to be a rotation that's uh, going on right now where many of the winners over the last 12 months coming out of the lows of COVID uh, and the COVID correction, um, you know, they, they were up tons you know many many stocks that we own were, were up more than 100 percent last year so there there was always going to be a time where the heat had to come out of those stocks and so mostly what we're seeing is a lot of the selling that's taking place at this point in time is really focused on those growth companies the leaders from the previous cycle mm. um, uh, markets like the s p 500 which are much more diverse and spread around more of the industrialized businesses and, and commodities and resource companies. So the, the S&P 500 has a much broader um, a broader uh, spectrum of stocks that, that make up that index across a much broader range of industries and sectors. Whereas the NASDAQ, which, uh, which is largely focused on innovative, high growth stocks, uh, that's where we're seeing the weakness in the NASDAQ, but the S&P 500 is holding up better. And in fact, our market's holding up quite well, to be honest. Um, our market's off, only off about 2 or 3% at this point in time, whereas the NASDAQ is off a, as, as much as uh, 10% over the last three weeks. Um, but 
look, it, this is this is healthy to be honest. This is uh, this is actually the sign where we're probably moving into that more broadening phase uh, of the market. But um, I think what I probably wanted to speak more so about was that um, it, we've got this hedge fund. Uh, UGC's Global Alpha Fund is being released over the course of the next uh, couple of months. And we're running a series of webinars on it. <clears throat> the first webinar is at 6 o'clock on Wednesday, the 10th of March. And we're running one every week uh, leading up to the end of April uh, on, the same when on, on Wednesday at the same time. Uh, and and in, in, that, uh, in those webinars, I'm going to be talking about the, the strategies that we've used to uh, generate a, an average return of 48% over the two and a quarter years we were in beta testing for this uh, particular strategy. And, uh, and also some of the concepts that we would use to uh, guard against um, a, a type of market reaction that we're having right now. Uh, in fact, uh, what we're doing in our portfolios at this point in time is we're actually using some hedging strategies and hedging out most of the uh, of the portfolio and, that we've got uh, currently invested. Um, and, and what that can do is it can help dampen the volatility in the portfolio. So where the NASDAQ um, might be down by 10%, you know, we can use these hedging strategies to try and dampen the volatility and maybe only have our portfolio down by 5% or 6% or 7% through the effective use of, of uh, hedging. But what the hedge fund also does is it also allows us to then put the, you know, put the pedal to the metal and, uh, and put the gas on when things start to, to look really good. And that's effectively what we've been trying to refine over this last two and a quarter years um, in the beta testing phase. We've got our strategy, we've got our approach. Um, not everything we did over the last two and a quarter years worked out well. We made plenty of mistakes along the way, but then you use that learning and that experience to refine what you're doing, and uh, and eventually once you become comfortable that you've got an edge that you can continue to exploit, even with the odd mistake here and there, um, you know we're, we're now at that point where we feel very comfortable to be launching this strategy and making it available to explicitly to and exclusively to uh, UGC clients. So that's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. And it's this type of environment that sets us up to be able to uh, you know, make some great returns coming out of uh, this downturn. Um, now, one of the things that we like to do, and, and I might just talk about one of the particular techniques that we've been refining uh, yeah, over, this, uh, over this period, it's, it's really coming down to that hedging strategy, right? So what we like to do is we like to have a look at our portfolio and analyze our portfolio based on what types of stocks are within that portfolio? And the key thing to understand about our portfolio is that we don't have a predefined set of ideas that are going to dictate where we're predicting the market to go. What we like to do is we like to allow the market to tell us where the action is. And we do that through a range of analysis techniques uh, like uh, technical analysis and momentum and, uh, and strength and buying power indicators, uh, as well as trend analysis as well. And, uh, and what happens is that that approach allows us to rotate our portfolios into the, into the areas of the market which are, which are the strongest. Um, and by design, that should give us uh, the exposure to our portfolio exposure to the, the stocks that are moving, or at least a good, good number of our stocks that are moving um, when the market is uh, really pushing them higher. Now, what that does, though, is that from time to time, the composition of our portfolio is going to change from growth stocks that are technology-based and software-focused to healthcare to um, uh, where I think that uh, our portfolio is probably going to be heading um, uh, over the next six to eight weeks is probably more into some of these recovery stories uh, like those travel industry uh, stocks that we may have uh, mentioned last week. 
and so what we've got to do is we're constantly got to analyze what is the best index that is most representative of our portfolio's movement. And what we'd like to do then is then set a level on that index that if the index breaks that level, we're going to hedge out our portfolio and hopefully get a, uh, a you know protection across all of our individual stocks that closely correlates with how our individual stocks are actually going to move. And so, for instance, let's say over the last 12 months, we're largely invested in these technology growth software, you know, soft, um, uh, work from home uh, type businesses that really did quite well. Most of those businesses are going to be listed on the NASDAQ stock, stock exchange. So what we do is we look for the NASDAQ stock market index and we'll, uh, we'll look to um, find a level on that index that is sort of our demarcation point. Now, usually that could be anywhere between sort of 5 to 10% below where the index is trading right now. And it'll usually uh, be a, there will usually be an area where we can clearly see that there was a previous uh, level of support. So the market's traded off, come down to a level, and then all of a sudden buyers have come in and started to bid the market back up again from that point. At that point, we now have a level where we, we believe that buyers would be prepared to step into the market if the market sold off. And so that becomes our level of support. And every time there's a new level of support that's established at a high level, we raise that demarcation point up so that uh, our portfolio is being backstopped by, um, by a, I guess, what we would call a trailing hedge. So that we allow the portfolio to continue to rise as the market's rising, but should the portfolio sell off abruptly um, and, uh, and should it reverse aggressively against us, we have a demarcation point that will limit how far our portfolio will fall because all of a sudden this hedge will kick in below that level that we've uh, identified on the NASDAQ. And the NASDAQ should be, you know, most representative of how our stocks in our portfolio will perform. Joel, now, one of the what is what is commonly the distance of the fall until you hit one of those levels of support and, and a stop loss would kick in? Are we talking so, like 2% or 10%? Yep. Yeah, uh, great, great question, Louis. And it really depends on the strategy. So with our Platinum Alpha uh, strategy, it's a much more longer term investment approach. We're uh, looking much more to play the longer term trends. And so in that portfolio, we'll give it a much wider berth. Uh, we'll give it as much as you know, 15 to 20 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and every uh, and the reason behind that is we're not looking to actively trade in and out of the market in that portfolio, but we also want to have a level that gives us the ability to weather a typical 10 percent, 15 percent correction that happens once every, you know, 15 to 18 months or so. Where we, we where we want the portfolio to kick in uh, and be hedged out in Platinum Alpha is when we have those big market moving events that could be, you know, once in a decade type of, uh, of sell down, like what we had last year with COVID or like what we had in, 2000 and, uh, in 2008 with the global financial crisis or like what we had in, in the early 2000s with the dot-com bust. Um, so for that particular portfolio, we'd be more inclined to uh, have a wider area for the the market to move around but as we saw signs of deterioration we'd be inclined to take some money off the table and sell into some of that strength so if we're if we're seeing the market rise and we're starting to see momentum start to slow we're starting to see divergences in buying power and and uh, we're starting to see divergences in participation then we'll start to say okay well look even though we have this demarcation line underneath us that will hedge our portfolio, let's try and just be a little bit conservative and roll some money out of the portfolio and put that to cash for the time being and see if we can get a pullback that we can put that money to work at, at lower levels. 
But with the hedge fund, and this is the this is why I think we can generate much much greater returns within the hedge fund, and why we, in fact we have been able to, is that the demarcation line within the hedge fund is much tighter. We're actively managing that on a on a daily basis, uh, and uh, and that demarcation line may be as tight as three or four or five percent in some instances, and it could be as wide as you know sort of six to ten percent in other instances, and. Um, and, and what we may even actually do is, and what we've been doing in the last three or four weeks is we've been putting test hedges into the market as well. So we can do this within a hedge fund. It's very hard to do it when you're managing 200 different share accounts. But within a one fund portfolio and one portfolio, what we can do is as we're getting into these riskier territories within the market, we can set test hedges across, say, half of our portfolio saying that, okay, we think that there's a good chance that this could be the top because we're seeing all of these divergences, we're seeing lots of warning signs, and we can put a hedge in at the top of the market but give it very little room to, to move against us. So we might only give the market, say, a quarter of a percent to half a percent uh, above our hedge that if the market starts to move higher again, then the hedge comes straight off and we, we've got the rest of the next wave up in the market and we're participating in that. So we can do this and we can do test hedges and, and we can also um, start to scale into a hedge as well. So we might start with a quarter of a percent, uh, sorry, a quarter of our portfolio being involved in a test hedge. And if it starts to work for us, we might put another quarter on and all of a sudden we've got 50% of our portfolio hedged out. And if that continues to work, then we might put another quarter on and now we've got 75% of our portfolio hedged out, but we've got a very tight stop on that hedge that if all of a sudden the market reverses and starts heading higher again, we, we, we're knocked out of those hedges and we participate in the bulk of the next leg up. So we can only do that within the hedge fund because of the ability to be able to manage that uh, that strategy across one portfolio and to be able to you know trade in one portfolio. It's very difficult to do that over 200, 300, 400 different trading accounts. So that's this is one of the things that we've been trialing and, and refining through our through our beta testing phase, and in fact, it's served us quite well through this current correction. The Nasdaq's down around about 10%, and we're off around about six and a half percent right now. For a portfolio that is that captured, you know, two times the move higher over the last two years, uh, we've given back half of the decline. And that's exactly how a hedge fund should actually work. You're never, ever going to just have this nice, steady stream moving higher in perpetuity. But what, what we want to try and do within our hedge fund and what we're going to be, uh, uh, what we're working on and refining is making sure that we can, you know, really capture the big bulk of the move higher. But when the market is about to give back some of that gain, that we're only giving back a portion of what the market's giving back. And if we can do that, you can become a very, very successful and very wealthy over a, over a decent period of time. So for anyone who's interested in learning more about uh, about that hedge fund and, and those techniques and those strategies and how we go about selecting stocks and trading those stocks and also how we go about protecting portfolios and managing that risk, I encourage you to come along. We've got uh, seven, uh, seven webinars uh, starting from Wednesday next week at six o'clock uh, to, to log yourself in. All you need to do is go to www.ugc.net.au slash webinars and uh, you can uh, register yourself at one of those webinars um, and we look forward to seeing you there. Very good. Absolutely jump on. Yeah. I know that's been a long time in the making, mate, so congratulations for getting it to this stage. Well, getting it up and running is one thing. Now we've got to actually do the real work and that's yeah. actually making it perform. <laughs> so uh, we look forward to the challenge. 
Yeah. Joel, I, I guess that's uh, it's another tool that you've got where every time there's a market correction, you've got an opportunity to add another couple of percentage points of, uh, of outperformance. So um, when, when you've got those tools there, you're, you're probably rubbing your hands together every time the market goes through a correction because you, you know that you've got these strategies and you're like, okay, well, the market's going to fall and then it's going to recover. Let's add another percentage point or 2% or 5% or, or whatever it is. Because these That's kinds right. of market corrections happen all the time, don't they? All, all the time. Look, you, you cannot be an investor in the stock market and uh, and not be able to tolerate these types of corrections. I mean, we actually had one of these uh, back in September of, uh, of last year, only six months ago. We had a 12.5% correction in the NASDAQ. And then within, uh, what was it, two and a half months, we're back at all-time highs. So this is just natural, normal market behavior. And um, uh, during bull markets, what you tend to do is these corrections don't tend to be broad market sell-offs. What they tend to be is more rotational. So, you you know, the, the ones that did well in the last phase higher tend to be sold off and money starts to rotate into the next leg. So if you've got a system that allows you to move your portfolio into stocks that are, that are showing that relative strength, in the face of that weakness, you're going to have your, your portfolio exposed to the stocks that are moving the most, or you're going to have your portfolio exposed to a lot of stocks that are moving the most in the next leg up. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating. Oh, just the, the amount of data you must have on that is um, uh, intriguing. Well, and this is, you know, um, certainly retail investors can do this, and it takes a lot of time to learn it and to master it, but there's no reason why a retail investor can't can't do this on their own. Uh, but, you know, we, we do have the benefit of having access to some serious software. Uh, we probably spend somewhere around about fifty dollars to $60,000 a year on, on the data and the technology uh, platforms that we use. Um, in fact, it's probably even more than that, to be honest, it's probably close to about $80,000 a year. So, you know, that type of analytics is not typically available to to, to, to most retail investors. So that's one of the advantages of, you know, being an institution, we can afford that type of software and that an analytical power. But to be honest with you, um, you could get 80 to 90% or even even 100% of the results without spending that um, without spending that money. There's some really great software packages out there and some really great data services for retail investors. So uh, don't think that uh, you're at a disadvantage. If you're trying to become a, a successful investor and, and trade the markets, uh, there's a lot of great uh, there's a lot of great tools and uh, and software packages and also training courses as well and books that you can read and learn just like I did that uh, that can give you that edge. There you go. And in one decade, you can be as good as Joel. Won't <laughs> <laughs> happen overnight, but it will happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, thank you, Joel. Uh, really interesting. And uh, let's take another little break. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. 
simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. And welcome back. Um, guys, this morning I want to touch on something which is uh, which is maybe a bit of a trigger uh, for, for some people, and it's uh, it's to do with what's been in the news lately about federal parliaments and the culture around federal parliaments. And uh, there's obviously a lot of nasty allegations going around and, uh, and, and yeah. what's being viewed around federal parliaments, um, and also there's been a, a bit of exposure on the South Australian parliaments uh, about a... A, a culture of um, that's endemic with uh, with harassment, uh, sexual harassment, uh, workplace bullying, uh, and, and all these sorts of things. And, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's been a been a bad month for uh, for Canberra, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, certainly has, certainly has. And um, I, I don't know how you guys feel about what they're going to do about it whether they're actually going to try and do something about it and if they do try genuinely whether they'll actually be successful or not it's a tough one well i mean it's going to require a, a major cultural shift and cultural change and i guess that starts from uh, a change in policy uh change in uh, expectations um there's going to be probably some upheaval i mean cultural change is not necessarily easy easy to to conduct so I'd even add that the change has potentially already begun because I think the first step is actually the awareness. The fact that it comes to light is the catalyst for the change. So yeah. in some ways, I think it's inevitable that the change is coming. It's just a matter of how and how quickly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It comes down to ultimately the problems that we're seeing right now. And I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing, even with these, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and uh, and various other, you know, uh, protests, just comes down to a, a general level of decency and respect for one another that, yeah. that seems to have been lacking for a long period of time for whatever bias or reason it may have been. But, you know, it's 2021. We've all got to sort of grow up and uh, and start to, um, you know, live in the, in the current times. Mm, yeah, that's right. And I'm always personally fascinated by um, organisational behaviour and, and, and people's behaviour in general. And um, I've, I've just been uh, looking into uh, a, a few commentators um, uh, and, and articles and, and uh, business articles on organisational change in general. And there's some data that shows that when a company actually embarks on a course of uh, of trying to change their culture, uh, there's a McKinsey survey which suggests that only one in three organisations actually succeed in changing really? their culture. Not a great hit yeah. rate. So it's not a great hit rate. Um, and th th there's a number of headwinds in order to do that. And then I'm not sure the government really applies to this uh, anyway. And, and I'll tell you my thinking on this, but, but first let me go through... Uh, some of the things from a McKinsey survey and, and a number of articles. Um, the challenges to cultural change is uh, the, the first one is one of our uh, biases as humans, and it's the concept that um, we, uh, we fear changing to something that we don't know yet, and yeah. we're more comfortable to stay with the problem that we've currently got because we know what it is. Um, and uh, people... People tend to, at managers and leaders, 
Um, if they look at a cultural change program, it's very clear to get a costing of how much it's going, how much money it's going to cost to try and drive this change or embark on a on a program or, or, or do something like that. And what is not clear is, well, what's the actual monetary benefit to making the change? Mm. So the benefit of cultural change, you don't know if it's going to deliver a certain percentage of productivity or percentage of retention. You've got these fuzzy benefits that is hard to tie to the the actual dollar cost that you can see clearly. Uh, so it's it's a real challenge for a company to embark on the change in the first place. Another challenge that comes along is that um, a real cultural change will usually take five years or more to actually stick to an organisation. Right. But when you look at how long most CEOs stay in companies, there's a lot of turnover that's shorter than six years. For the tenure of a CEO, what are what are some of the techniques and processes that businesses will employ to, uh, you know, undergo a cultural transformation? Well, some of the things that work really well is um, when when you're undergoing a change program. Um, there's often a lot of fear brought up by the by the employees underneath because they've got all the same biases. Once the yeah. leadership and management uh, is able to um, embrace the idea of a new way of doing things, then they have to convince the actual employees on the ground to make the change. And if management moves in one direction and the rest of the organisation does not, um, you've got the majority of your workforce who doesn't actually change and therefore no material difference is actually realised. Yeah. So one of the things that works well um, is to uh, is to present the change as a non-negotiable and as a permanent change. So you right. don't give people the option to continue with their past behaviour or to continue with the the old environment. Another uh, another area where people or organisations don't often succeed is to present the cultural change in broader terms and fuzzy terms that never gets developed into measurable goals. But if they do link it to measurable goals and specific purposes, that's where they have a much better success rate. Yeah, and, uh, and, and it helps to get people on board in the first place and it gives people a focus and a purpose for doing it, so increases the engagement um, and, uh, and the realisation of those results. So if you have the organisational change, if you can say, we're trying to increase our production by 10% purely by um, making this organisational change, uh, where there's probably the biggest um, success in organisational change is uh, is places where safety is an issue, and uh, a lot of the material that's out there is talking about a, a culture of safety. In financial services, we talk about a culture of compliance, uh, and yep. in those areas, you can measure failure rates, you can measure accident rates, you can measure compliance breach rates or um, um, or error rates, things like that. So if you can tie it to, we want to reduce our error rate or accident rate by X percentage, 
then you've got a much more tangible thing for people to work towards. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, Louis, and, sports teams are big on culture as well. Like whenever there's a period of success, they, they do talk a lot about the culture of the club or the team that have, have helped sustain that success. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's full credit to, to teams to be able to make that leap. Um, but uh, And it's interesting to see that there are some clubs that do it really well and other clubs that just don't seem to do it really well. And if one in three scenario you mentioned, yeah, that's right, that's right. And if it was if it was easy to do, I, I mean, the fact that you don't see it with every football club, for example, is that because you've got eighteen teams in the competition and there can only be one winner? If that were the case, well, then you'd probably see a, a more even spread around the entire competition of mm. of the winners. But we we consistently. Uh, see that um, the the Western Bulldogs are always pretty crap. Uh, St Kilda never seems to get on top, uh, and the the Dockers are always the shockers. Uh, so it, it's you, you could be biting those words this year. Geez. Yeah. Sorry to all sorry to all of our St Kilda and Western Bulldogs uh, followers. <laughs> Which one, Joel? Which one? <laughs> oh, he's doubling down. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Uh, but it's it's very hard to um, – credit to those clubs that have done it, but, again, those um, those changes and which actual changes to make in their culture and how to design that culture, there's so many fuzzy variables. So good on the ones that, uh, that do it and get it right. Uh, yeah. But that's really hard when you're talking about a sporting team and getting it right because you can get culture – absolutely spot on perfect yeah but but if it's actually not uh, you, you firstly have to select the right culture that leads to the winning mentality mm. and then you have to implement that culture and i've just got a suspicion that a lot of it happens by luck and by accident um yeah. uh, and it's that unmeasurable quality Probably, uh, I think it also probably comes down to the personality traits and the um, interactive skills of senior management as well. You know, how do they relate to their staff? And then in turn, how do their staff perceive them? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, you know, if, if management are, are self-aware uh, and become self-aware, it really starts with, you know, changes in behaviour at the top mm-hmm. Uh Strong leadership, very important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if we bring it back to this culture of um, uh, these cultures that uh, should not continue of harassment or bullying or anything like that, um, the the organisational problem is the normalisation of practices that shouldn't be normalised. And in a safety culture, it might be the normalisation of cutting corners. You don't want to do that. Uh, the normalisation of not following the process or the normalisation of harassment, um, turning a blind eye to it. And, and these these normalisation is probably the biggest issue uh, with these things that we're talking about today around uh, uh, harassment and, and bullying and issues of racism and, and uh, any systemic problem. Mm. Um, if you've got an organisation 
well, then you've got leadership at the top that can make the change and embrace the change and implement the new systems and procedures and policies to make it happen. Uh, and you've got the ability to get rid of the people who are not following the new culture that you want to follow and uh, and get the right people on the bus. Um, yep. That's the that's the phrase that's used uh, by Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. If you've got yep. the right people on the bus, then, uh, then you can take your organisation in the right direction. Yeah. Here's the problem with politics, though. It's not that kind of organisation. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not easy for uh, for somebody to to. It's not easy for a prime minister to sack a voted a, a elected um, minister or representative. Exactly. So the way that that person has their job or doesn't have that job is votes. Yes. Uh, so the only way to to drive change in those people well well you can't say we're looking for greater productivity from you we can't say we're looking for a, a reduced accident rate or error rate or, or something like that because politics doesn't work that way like it does right. in an organization uh, when it comes to politics the way to change the people who have the power is votes yeah and yeah. that's why they're driven by a, a totally different set of incentives. And, and that's why it attracts people who have a certain personality type. Yeah. And maybe in our system, that's the, that's the bigger problem, which means that the only way to drive this change, like you said, Brett, is awareness and creating an expectation that elected officials should have a certain uh, value system or moral code um, and, uh, and, and being able to standards. be made aware. I think there needs to be a flip side too, that um, there needs to be the non-acceptance of the behaviour that's not in line in some yeah. way. Yep. And and that probably starts with the voting community, set, you know, setting that level of you know, expectation of what we want from our politicians and the level of behaviour and the type, you know, their the attitude to others. Um, you know, mm. we as voters have the have the power to influence that cultural change through how we go about voting and how we give our feedback through polls and uh, and various other surveys around how we think our politicians are performing. But the thing is, if you're going to be successful in politics, you need to have the skills and personality type to handle the scrutiny of the media, handle the scrutiny of an opposition party and your, your opposing candidates. Um, you have to also be able to navigate the, um, the, the boxing matches of your own party room uh, and, and all the internal politics that goes with it. And what kind of personality type does that attract? And now you've, you're saying, well, now it's got to be yeah. a personality type that doesn't have these other behaviours that go with it. And, yeah. and, and I've, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. Absolutely, we should do it. But we're putting more pressure on narrowing the fields of people with the right personalities and skill sets that will actually succeed in politics. And I think um, I would love to see this change happen but I think we've got this conflict between the people in politics and the values that we expect. And I think that is our yeah. greater problem. So you see this as being something that's going to be very difficult to turn around and to change, uh, not just here in Australia, but in most uh, most fields of politics around the world. 
I would say in most field of politics, yeah, my, my personal opinion, I, I'd love to see it change. I'd love to see how people get elected uh, be changed to something which is more uh, data-based and uh, and less biased. Um, but but how do you do that? I mean, that's it's yeah. almost impossible. Yeah, that's yep. a big question. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that was my... Uh, um, Oh, probably uh, made the mood a little bit heavy in this room, didn't I? <laughs> That's all good. Oh, we can talk about the killer again and how shithouse they are. <laughs> Take that, Eric Banner. Tripling down. Tripling down. <laughs> all right. Let's go to our favourite part of the uh, of the podcast, to the You Can't Be Serious. Yep. All right, Louis. Well, look, I'm going to kick it off today and talk about the sad story of a couple in the UK, a young couple, 19 and 21, Liam McCrowan and Rachel Kennedy. These unlucky buggers missed out on the lottery when their winning numbers came up. And it wasn't just a lottery. It was 182 million pounds or 320 million Aussie dollars. Yeah. 320, let me say that again, 320 million Aussie dollars. That would almost be enough to get you on the rich list here in Australia. Well, you uh, I think I, I think it was about uh it was about 500,000 I think was the was 500 million, sorry, was it was about the cutoff for the rich 200 list one or two years ago. So uh now the, the unfortunate event happened when uh Rachel, Liam's partner, uh had booked to uh, register a, a consecutive num- a set of numbers and uh, they'd had the automatic, uh, you know, registration every week to go in with the same set of numbers and they'd been picking these numbers for about seven or eight weeks in a row only for Rachel's bank account to be low the week that they were going to debit the money out of the bank account. Oh, no. And the debit failed so they didn't get the tickets and to make matters worse, the lottery organization also sent them a notification saying you've got the winning numbers <gasps> so they thought they thought that they'd won and only to call up and say i'm sorry yes you've got the winning numbers but you don't have a winning ticket because the t- the oh. payment never went through oh that is that is heartbreaking oh. absolutely heartbreaking oh how do you come back from that well that didn't lighten the mood much Oh, you poor bastards. Now you know how St Kilda feels. You you cannot be serious. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Oh, that's awful. Jeez. Well, that kind of makes me want to vomit hearing that, uh, which which ties in with something I want to quickly raise is is the value of vomit that I was never aware of. Um, But it came to light to me because uh, a particular lady in Thailand stumbled across a lump of whale vomit that is apparently worth 180,000 pounds. What? What? Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, so it's, it's uh, apparently they used the whale vomit, which is known as amber grease, uh, <laughs> as a way of sustaining perfumes. Wow. Okay. Uh, very, there valuable, you go. very valuable and, and sought after by all of the, uh, the perfume houses. Well, My okay. My goodness. What do you do? You, do you slurp it in a bucket and take it to your local Hermes store? Uh, apparently the vomit solidifies and then they, they sort of melt it and add it into whatever else. So, yeah, the 
the the lump itself is apparently she found a seven kilogram lump on the Oof. beach and uh, and wasn't sure what it was, but lugged at home and he's waiting for people to confirm and, and make an offer. Wow. Jeez. What My a crazy goodness. thing. Jeez. My goodness. Uh, gents, I um, I stumbled across the list of the 20 most visited websites, uh, US-based, uh, uh, in uh, in February of last month, and I thought you might um, might just be interested in the results. Um, Google is of course the most visited website in the world. Uh, YouTube second most, Facebook, Amazon, then Wikipedia, okay. uh, then Yahoo. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Which, okay. So I guess people still use Yahoo. Uh, yeah. Next comes Reddit. Uh, Reddit. Okay. Which is the uh, the community posting board, uh, home of yep. Wall Street Bets, uh, yes. um, which was promoting the the GameStop. Um, oh, what do you call that fiasco? Yeah. Uh, then comes our first porn site. Pornhub.com. Uh, you made the top ten. It was coming. It was That's coming. That's right. That's right. Uh, it's uh, it has uh, more visits than than Twitter, which is next. Then Instagram, eBay. Then another porn site, X Videos. Uh, then there's CNN.com. Right. Oh, that's the first okay. real news site. So there you get a real news site. Then you get Fandom.com, which is a gaming site. Never yeah. heard of it. Then you get Walmart. Walmart, oh, so okay. That's the shopping one. So that's then bigger than get, Amazon. That's right. Uh, no, no, no. Amazon, uh, Amazon is uh, fourth on the list. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, and uh, and much bigger. Probably about uh, eight times the the number of visits. Yeah, right. Um, as uh, as Walmart. Um, but Amazon's a you know is a conglomerate of many different retailers. Well, where Walmart is the the one shop, which is amazing. Uh, mm. Craigslist. ESPN, weather.com, um, xnxx.com, which I can only presume is another porn site. Sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. Brett, <laughs> Brett, can you confirm? Thank you, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, Zoom. Let me just check my favourites. <laughs> check his history. <laughs> So I thought that might just be a little bit, a uh, little bit interesting. All of those websites. Uh, are US based except for all the porn sites. All the porn sites are overseas and all the other sites are US based. So there really? you go. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Fascinating. I wonder why that is. I would have thought the US would host those porn sites. <laughs> yeah. You're an IT, Brett. What's the answer? Uh, there must be some law or something about that sort of uh, yeah information or. Stuff being host, I don't know. Have, there, there's obviously a reason because I would imagine the businesses behind them would be US, but who knows? Mm, mm. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, that concludes the podcast for today. Thank you, gents. Uh, fun times as always. Thank you, Louis. Well done on the hosting again. Thank yep. you. And, and we'll shout out to around the next year and Bulldog supporters. We we do love you. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> I'll I'll give a grudgingly. Yes, we do. Okay. Well, we need someone to beat, right? Because yeah. it wasn't for those teams. <laughs> West Coast. Oh, God, God, here he goes. I think we better leave it there. I've got some very good clients and vows who may not be very impressed with this, Louis. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> All right. All right.
you, you're more than welcome to to come back at me. Go on, give it to, give it to me. Very good. Uh, next time I'm yeah. speaking to you clients, you can uh, you can give me an earful. You have permission. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> All right, cheers, All right, guys. guys. Take it easy.